Putin's been able to say, look at the United States. Their elections aren't any better than ours. They don't produce a leader any better than the one you have. And in fact, the guy they've got is stupid and unhinged. In a democracy, the only line of defense are the voters themselves. There is no way to defend yourself against propaganda when a significant number of people in your country, numbering in the millions, are gullible dupes that are willing to swallow the story. We were low-hanging fruit out there in the world of conspiracy theories and disinformation and dank memes and all of that nonsense. Because we have eliminated a lot of the language of morality and obligation and honor and democracy from our language, it leaves us without a vocabulary to explain why we have alliances in any way other than purely transactional economic terms. Because if our values are not our interest, then the whole Cold War was pointless and we should have just negotiated a condominium of Europe with the Soviet Union and gotten on with it. Americans never really understand the value of an alliance until things start to break down. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. The comments you've just been listening to come from Professor Tom Nichols, and we will be talking American national security in an election year with him right after this message. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And welcome back. We are coming to you from the Pillow Fort studio in the Bio Bunker on lockdown in Chile, Canberra, Australia. In this episode, we will be talking American national security in an election year with Professor Tom Nichols. Tom is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, an adjunct professor at the Harvard Extension School, a former aide in the U.S. Senate, and the author of the book The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. No doubt you've at least heard of, if not read that book. We would like to note that Tom is speaking to us in his personal capacity and his views do not necessarily represent any organisation or person other than himself. 
Before we get into it with Tom, I just want to emphasize that I truly am in a makeshift studio built out of pillows and dunas rather than in the Policy Forum studio due to the coronavirus lockdown that we're all experiencing. We do our best to cut out resonance and outside noises, but we can't replicate the acoustics of the studio that you're used to on the NatSec pod. You have our apologies for this. We hope you bear with us until we can get back to our usual standards and practices. But in the meantime, let's chat to Tom. G'day, Tom. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Good to be with you, Chris. Before we get into America's national security in an election year, I just want to quickly talk about your book, uh, Death of Expertise, for anyone who has been living under a rock for the past three years. How has your position on the way expertise is perceived and approached in society evolved since you wrote the book? Uh, well, I'm I'm mostly uh, more pessimistic. When the book came out, I went on a book tour and I gave a lot of lectures and I said, look, three things will really shake people out of their um, narcissistic rejection of expertise. And I said, they're all disasters, but uh, if there's a war, a depression, or a pandemic, people will understand the need to rely on expertise again. Well, so far it looks like we've got two out of three. And on the bright side, I think that people who were always inclined to trust in science and facts and knowledge, which is the majority of the people in the United States and in the developed world, um, their their respect for that is deepening. We think of our medical personnel as heroes. You know, Anthony Fauci, one of the top advisors on this, one of the most trusted people in the country. The problem is that there is a hardcore of people for whom this is just causing a kind of backfire effect or a doubling down that if they were already inclined not to trust experts, this is just, um, you know, the kind of conspiracy theory material that they need to say, see, this is why I never trusted doctors and, you know, big, big business and big government and big pharma and big everything. Um, because it's, it, it, I, I think I underestimated the degree to which people's partisan orientation is really capable of defeating their the reality of the world they live in that you know that people's partisan beliefs are actually stronger than the experience of seeing things with their own eyes and i i think i underestimated that were you surprised at all that the effort to interfere in America's 2016 elections gained the traction that it did? And I'm referring specifically to the disinformation that was deployed by Russian agents that was often as crude as memes and tweets. Um, no, unfortunately. Um, I think it's important to point out that I wrote The Death of Expertise, and I should also point out, by the way, I don't speak for the government or the Navy or any of the institutions I, I work for. I think there's a perception among a lot of folks out there that I might have written this book somehow in response to the campaign or things that have happened over the past few years, when in fact, I actually, the first time I wrote about this was uh, about seven years uh, ago. So, you know, a good three or four years before the campaign, before Donald Trump was even a blip on anybody's radar about this um, or the Russian interference. I, I was really worried that something like this could happen because people are so lax 
about where they get their information. I just today had a conversation with an old school friend from my childhood. He asked me about something he'd read on Facebook. And I said, okay, not only is this wrong, but why are you still getting your news from Facebook? Why are you still reading stuff on, you know, or watching videos on Facebook? Um, which he found a kind of off putting answer. Um, but I, I just, I, was not surprised that the Russians could gain this kind of traction because we're a society uh, that was ripe for it. it. We were we were low hanging fruit out there in the world of conspiracy theories and disinformation and you know dank memes and all of that nonsense. Um, I think the closest comparison you could find with the United States are in some of the shakier, uh, not well institutionalized democracies of Central Europe that have been bombarded with this, but, but at least there is an excuse. They don't have a long tradition of dealing with an impartial press. They are innately, they are, you know, people in places like the Czech Republic or Poland or Hungary, they're innately distrustful of media sources because their experience in life until 25 or 30 years ago was that the media was never trustworthy. Americans really have no excuse for this other than that. We just always want to be told what things that agree with stuff we already believe in. Is is the death of expertise a, a Western type of an experience, or does it actually transcend culture and political systems? Uh, I, you know, boy, I wish it were just an American thing. And um, in the midst of uh, saying something very pessimistic, um, I will brag for a moment and say that when I was writing the book, I really did think I was just mostly writing about the United States, maybe the U.S. and Great Britain, kind of the tabloid culture, you know. But I thought this is this is primarily a kind of a North American phenomenon. Uh, the brag is that I was shocked that the the book is now in twelve foreign languages, which is you know gratifying to me as an author, but terrifying to me as a person. Um, I just didn't think this was a, an issue that had that much resonance around the world, and I think what it is is the result of a very high standard of living. Um, peace, prosperity, and um, I think also the the um, availability of a lot of bad information. I, I the metaphor I always use is um, fast food. That Americans have never had access to more calories uh, and more food ch- food choices, but that's why we're also obese and unhealthy. And you, you see another, and I, this is where it becomes a global thing that the more countries become like the United States in the way they eat, the heavier and less healthy they get. And so I think what I thought was an American phenomenon, you know, on second look turned out to be a global phenomenon, but primarily in the developed world. Um, where, you know, everybody has an internet connection, everybody has a smartphone, everybody has a high school education. That's actually um, having more education, I think, makes you a little bit more susceptible to this because you think you've been fireproofed against it. Um, And so, yeah, it's not just an American, unfortunately, it's not just an American phenomenon. So a question I've been dying to ask you since I read your book, an old colleague of mine once made the comment that all the internet has done is give the idiots a louder voice. And at first I wanted to push back against that and say, no, it's democratized information and all of these romantic ideas. 
But when I thought about it, it's essentially saying that we already had books, we already had libraries, we had TV, we had radio and newspapers that used to at least predicate their value on a search for truth or or adding value to the discussion. The guests that they would have on would be heavily vetted and be essentially most of the time authoritative voices. Whereas now the internet has given that ability to anyone to transmit. Has the internet given the idiots a louder voice? Um, yes, but I, 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 I want to kind of reaffirm the value of technology and communication here because I think without technology, without this level of communication, without the sharing of images, for example, I think uh, the Soviet Union would have been around longer, just to take one example. I think that you know the internet... The ability to communicate globally and instantly uh, is the worst nightmare for authoritarian regimes. They they wish they could figure out how to put a stop to it. They wish they could turn the internet off. I was uh, in the '90s very much a um, I can't say I was a techno utopian, but I definitely saw this as a very positive development for greater democratization more peace in the world. And I think that that actually, that promise has been realized. I mean, people don't like to hear it, but we do live in a more peaceful world. We just do. Um, you can argue with it all day long and talk about, you know, the American war on terror and, you know, deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq and terrorism around the world. But there, you know, President Obama said it when he was in office and he got dogpiled for it. But the world, no matter how much it it seems counterintuitive. The world is a safer and more peaceful place. And I think that global communication and greater interaction between people from different countries had a lot to do with that. The problem is, as you say, it also was the equivalent of giving giving every neighborhood um, moron his own radio station that he could just broadcast at you know, 500,000 watts day and night. I think the other thing, but that that's less corrosive than the other thing that happened because, you know, there are always dumb people who shout at the top of their lungs. There are two other phenomena that really were a negative consequence of more connectivity. One is it lowered the bar for entry into the public debate. As you say, Chris, you know, there was once upon a time that to put a letter in a newspaper or to appear on television, you had to have some kind of minimal competence. Uh, that's gone. And I think partly it's just to fill the time and to fill the space and to fill the bandwidth available. The other thing that happened is that, you know, every town has a local crank, but peer pressure and social um, conventions were kind of a reminder to that person that, no, you know, you might be the only person in town that believes that we didn't land on the moon, but all of your neighbors really do. And that did that, that was a kind of constraining influence on people like that. Now, if you're the guy that doesn't believe we landed on the moon, you can go on the internet and you can find the one crank in 50,000 other towns. And suddenly you're not just a collected bunch of cranks. You're a club. You're a movement. Um, you know, you're an organization. You're an association. And I think that that has created a kind of false sense of consensus about dumb stuff just because there's enough dumb people who can reach out to each other and affirm each other through the internet. And I think we don't, we don't think about that enough about how people, and obviously during the pandemic, you're seeing it in spades now, you know, that, um, you know, Anthony Fauci knew about this virus 
10 years before it was created and invested in vaccines and blah, 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 blah. So um, that's really a dark side of this. So I've gone from being a techno optimist to uh, realizing that, you know, um, the printing press was a great thing, but maybe everybody uh, shouldn't have a printing press in their house because then all books look alike and you can't tell the, the, the nutty stuff from the things that were actually worked on by editors. And so what are the long-term consequences of all of this, of the death of expertise? My biggest fear is not that we collapse into some kind of mob. Um, you know, that's, that's always the kind of the nightmare scenario that, you know, the, the, that the dumb people burn down all the universities and all that stuff. That's not going to happen. My bigger fear is that this corrodes and really puts an end to democracy in the way that has already begun, which is that we are transitioning away from democracy towards some kind of quiet technocracy. And I always kind of surprise audiences when I say this, um, but my answer is not because the technocrats are trying to take power, but that it's happening by default. Because when you ask the public a question for their preference, the answers are, are gibberish. They are, they are literally so internally inconsistent that elected officials, um, you know, their advisors, the technocrats, bureaucrats, the people that kind of keep the lights on and, you know, make the water flow, uh, they can't make sense out of it. And I, what I'm really worried about is that increasingly that class of people, including elected officials, will turn to each other and say, let's just not ask them anymore. It's just too difficult. It's too scary. Let's just provide them with stuff they like, keep the internet on, make sure there's enough, you know, sports on TV and enough uh, snacks in the stores and, you know, we'll, we'll just muddle through. And that, that's not democracy. That's not a republic. That's, um, that's a paternalistic administrative state taking care of, um, you know, people who have functionally become wards of the state. And I, I, that future really, it doesn't frighten me personally because I'm, you know, I'm an educated guy. I'm an empowered voter. Um, but it frightens me because it says that the, the society I live in will be unrecognizable once that happens. And I, I'm just, I, I find that the most depressing possibility of all. In, in a way, what I've really done is to, with this book is to tell people, look, the, the power to govern yourselves is sitting right there. All you have to do is get off of Facebook and, you know, stop going to YouTube for your information. And you can really... You really can manage your own political uh, um, powers. You know, you really can be, um, you know, a democracy that's worthy of the name. And unfortunately, I think most people in the developed world just, you know, take that life raft or that life preserver and they just keep throwing it back and saying they'd rather swim in circles. So I'm not quite sure what to do about it. I could talk about your book all day because it is one hell of a read. I got to say, it's a frustrating read because it's so accurate. But we are here to talk about America's national security in 2020 and election year. So, the first thing <clears throat> I'd like to ask is actually not so much about America, but it's about Russia. What does Putin's Russia want from the United States? I think what Russia wants out of the election and really out of anything is indivisible from what Putin wants. This is a mafia state run by a Don, run by a boss. And what Putin wants is to stay in power and to, you know, basically have people leave him alone, to keep his own people scared. 
And interfering in the American election has been really a powerful tool for that because Putin's been able to say, look at the United States. Their elections aren't any better than ours. Um, They don't produce a leader any better than the one you have. And in fact, the guy they've got is, you know, stupid and unhinged. I think people underestimate the degree because unless you read or follow the Russian media, you would miss this. The Russian media loves to hammer on Trump as basically a, a clown and a moron. Um, they, they didn't put him there as, you know, this great friend to Russia. They, they are really enjoying the clown show and they revel in it every day. So uh, I think to, to bring all of the other leaders of the world, all the other great democracies down to Russia's level has been a really important part of this for Putin. And that gives him freedom of action. He, because then he makes the case to say, look, you know, NATO, is a meaningless organization because the Americans aren't committed to it. Europe is decadent and failing. Only I, you know, ha- really have, um, you know, the, the wherewithal to, to keep things together. And no other country really has the power to criticize me, certainly not from any kind of moral high ground. Um, other than that, I think what Putin gets out of it in a very practical way is a free hand in Europe, intimidation of our European allies, um, intimidation of the Americans when it comes to things like energy. Um, he, he basically gets a free hand, which pers- which as a foreign policy matter, and I think you, you always have to keep this in mind when talking about Russia, because it's never um, decoupled from the domestic policy problem. He gets a free hand abroad, which gives him a free hand and a rationalization at home. Does the US need to protect itself against Russian influence in 2020 in the coming elections? And if so, how does it best do that? Well, absolutely it does because our own intelligence community, including intelligence um, reports issued by the Republicans, I mean, this is a bipartisan concern in theory, uh, have already concluded that the Russians are actively interfering in American election processes. I mean, I, in a way, I can't believe I'm sitting here saying that because there was once a time where doing something like this was really, you know, over the line. I mean, I feel like the United States and the, um, the Russians kind of, you know, had rules of the road about things that were, um, inbounds and out of bounds, but the Russians have decided they're never going to pay a price for any of this stuff. So, you know, why not keep doing it? Um, and so they're already doing it. now how, how we can best defend ourselves. Uh, I wish I had a better answer for you because in a democracy, the only line of defense are the voters themselves. You know, back during the cold war, the Soviets used to try to influence us with propaganda and influence ops. And they didn't work very well because most Americans were pretty savvy and they knew enough that when somebody in the Soviet Union said, you know, that the U.S. Army invented AIDS, um, most people in America would say, yeah, right, whatever. But unfortunately, there is no way to defend yourself against propaganda when, you know, a, a significant number of people in your country, numbering in the millions, are gullible dupes that are willing to swallow the story. And I don't know quite what to do about that, although I do think that the American media and the American government need to be better about really, you know, going after these stories like terriers. Because I think one of the things that Trump has done is convince a fair number of people that if anybody says the word Russia, it's a hoax. Well, 
the, the Russians really exist and they really are doing bad things. And I think the American media and I think, um, you know, the people in the intelligence community, people, uh, elected officials, they need to get over their fear of having Trump make mean tweets about Russia. They need to come right out and say, this is happening. That we didn't do that in 2016 because President Obama and the Democrats were worried that they were going to be viewed as too partisan. I think everybody understands that was a mistake, and I hope it's a mistake we don't repeat now. So just previously, you mentioned NATO, and it brings me to my next question, in that America's alliance relationships and strategic partnerships are largely relics of the Cold War. How valid are they for today's geopolitical landscape, and uh, what should be retained, what should be rethought, and what are the new approaches that should be considered in the US's alliance partnerships? Well, I, I take issue with the premise of the question that they are relics of the Cold War. They were developed during the Cold War, um, but NATO originally was founded in the idea that free societies need to band together to defend themselves against an authoritarian threat. I don't think that there's anything any different today in, in that mission than there was 70 years ago. Um, you know, Estonia is a free country. It's a member of NATO. It's under threat by the Russians. Uh, you know, we shouldn't view that mission any differently now than we did in, you know, 1980 or 1970. I think part of the problem here is that because we have eliminated a lot of the language of morality and obligation and honor and democracy from our language, um, it leaves us without a vocabulary to explain why we have alliances in any way other than purely transactional economic terms. And uh, of course, President Trump has exploited that brilliantly to say, well, you know, what do we get out of our relationship with South Korea? What do we get out of it with, you know, Europe? But I think we're seeing the value of that. I mean, I, you know, the North Koreans are pretty much running the show now uh, on the Korean Peninsula. We don't have a good relationship with the Chinese. We don't have a workable relationship with the South Koreans about this. And this is something obviously, you know, really important to Australians living in that neighborhood. Um, but, you know, the president um, has decided that alliances are just basically money-making organizations. They're protection rackets. So that opens the field for authoritarian governments to pretty much up the ante at will and that's one of the reasons that, you know, Kim Jong-un is still around, still has a nuclear weapons program, why Putin is, you know, at will threatening everybody from his neighbors in Ukraine to actual NATO uh, partners like Denmark and uh, Estonia and others. And um, I think this is particularly an American problem, that Americans never really understand the value of an alliance until things start to break down. There, You know, there's a saying about Americans and foreign policy uh, and I wish I could remember who coined it, said that Americans view foreign policy the way they think about the plumbing. They never think about it until they're up to their hips in water. And I think alliances are much like that. But I, I think part of the reason for that is that we just don't think about alliances in terms of our values anymore. And I think that's a failing of um, mostly, I have to say, of the party that I used to belong to, the Republicans, who were once the party that made the argument for, you know, alliances being these kind of moral platforms. It's a constant discussion here in Australia and has been ever since President Trump came into the White House that our partnership and our alliance is really based on values and interests. And the feeling is now that uh, US partnerships are moving to interest base. And 
interests shift a lot quicker and a lot more easily than do values. Values are the underpinning bedrock of a partnership or of of a relationship, and so we we see this uh, this evolving attitude towards a partnership, and and we wonder how how much we should rely on the U.S. being committed and present within the Indo-Pacific. Do you think it's right that, Australia, that, that America's allies should be cautious in planning for a region where the United States is less present and committed? I think that has a lot to do uh, with what happens in the next election. Um, I think that um, most Americans are internationalists. Most Americans, and we know this from polls, uh, believe in our alliances. They believe particularly in the alliances with our traditional friends in the English-speaking world, the the daughters of Great Britain, uh, you know, Canada, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Great Britain, and so on. Um, but uh, the damage that this administration could do with another four years of treating alliances as protection rackets uh, could be significant. Um, the one thing that I think is really important to make a distinction here uh, to, and to think about is the degree to which the isolationist wing of, or the realists, the kind of hardcore realists who think of themselves that way, have divorced interests from values. There was a time in the 90s um, when President Clinton and President uh, Prime Minister Blair, you know, and Tony Blair more than any got got out there and said, our values are our interests. And at the time, there was a lot of eye rolling about this and that it was uh, too Wilsonian. Um, Charles, the late Charles, Charles Krauthammer referred to uh, Clinton's decision to go after Milosevic as a kind of generic anti-son of a bitch policy. Uh, but, you know, during the Cold War, we, I, I mean, it really strikes me that people think of this as something alien to the American tradition. During the Cold War, we were very clear that our interests and our values were indivisible. There was a reason, for example, that we did not want Spain in NATO until Franco was gone. It was not a marriage of convenience among European nations to hold back the Soviet Union. Um, you know, there were, even during the, the time of Greece and the colonels, you know, where we were really concerned about what are we going to do when, you know, one of our primary members is, you know, fall, has fallen into this autocracy. We, we really sweated these questions and the idea that somehow, well, you know, we have values over here and we have interests over there, uh, I think undermines not just what the American idea is about. It undermines what the Western idea is about, because if our values are not our interest, then the whole Cold War was pointless and we should have just negotiated a condominium of Europe with the Soviet Union and, and gotten on with it. And, and we didn't. Um, you know, If our values were not our interest, we should have just figured out what a good price for oil was, paid it to Saddam Hussein, and let him rule you know, a big chunk of the Middle East. We didn't do that. Um, so I, I, I find this a very artificial division. And again, here in the United States, it's being pushed by people who fancy themselves to be realists when in fact what they are are really kind of neo-isolationists. And I think it's terribly unhealthy. But I, I also think that's a, that will be rolled back uh, if the president is defeated in November because it is not where most of the American people are. It's where most of the Republican Party is. All right, we might take a quick break there. You are listening to the National Security Podcast, and we are chatting to Professor Tom Nichols on American national security in an election year, and we'll be back for more right after this break. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. So I'm going to switch from an international perspective to a domestic perspective of US national security. I'm going to talk about the vision that we've seen around the world of these ununiformed, heavily armed men, often with their faces disguised, storming state capitol buildings uh, in the US recently, which is really confronting and confusing for many non-Americans. Can you explain the context of these images that we're seeing and what these social tensions might mean for the US in an election year? Well, there's a couple of things to realize about those protests. One is, this brings us back to our point about the internet. These number, The number of people involved in these things is actually quite small, but the ability to organize and to coordinate their message through social media and through the internet is quite large. And so they have, and they are very good at managing their brand and managing their, their images on social media. And so they have a disproportionately large impact. Why they're doing it is a kind of deep sociological question that I may be out of my league trying to answer. I, as a, you know, sort of 60-ish man here in America, I think particularly where the young men uh, cosplaying like G.I. Joe are concerned. I think there's some, it says something very bad about a, a, a kind of an off-ramp of American manhood where a lot of young American men simply never grew up, never, you know, kind of developed a, a, an identity outside of, you know, guns and camis and, and things like that. Uh, but I think when it comes to the election, uh, I actually think that there is a backfire uh, there's a kind of a um, a blowback effect that's happening. This has not damaged the popularity of people like uh, the governor of Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, I think most people are repulsed by this. The idea that you know there are young men in balac- you know m- m- kind of makeshift balaclavas walking around the states of the Michigan State House, uh, I think strikes most people as absurd and even a bit repulsive. I, I worked in a- in the Massachusetts State House as a young man. Um, and I can tell you that had that, you know, happened back in the day, the state police would have shown up and, you know, escorted those folks out. But the problem is everybody's very conscious of how that looks on social media. And so, you know, people protest and everybody kind of puts up with it. But I, I, I would argue that that's a pretty dedicated minority that's really good at commanding an outsized influence, uh, on social media. And I would, maybe I'm being a little hopeful here. 
But to judge, at least subjectively, from what's going on in the United States, I think some of that's having a really um, um, ne- that they're that they're stepping on their own message here. Because I think you know you look at the numbers and you're talking about 70, 75, 80 percent of the American public, even in places like Michigan, support uh, social distancing and business lockdowns and you know masks and things like that. Um, so I'm I'm not sure how well that's going to really play out for some of those folks and and. As a reminder to your Australian listeners, um, the raw numbers of people are less important than the numbers in any one state because, of course, we elect a president based on the Electoral College rather than on a national percentage. And I'm not sure that these activities are going to tip the scales in places like Michigan, which is a state that the president won and is, I think, at this point likely to lose in November. So how has America changed in the the last three years in terms of having a populist president uh, as well as experiencing the full force of the coronavirus outbreak and now some of the pushback that we're seeing against the measures to defend against that outbreak? We are more divided. Our differences, I think, are in some ways more extreme. Although I would argue that those uh, that the that the president's supporters have had to move to more extreme positions because they have had to keep doubling down. I think this is one of the phenomena about uh, this presidency that is hard to understand, that he has generated a lot of opposition. He's had a wipeout in the Congress on the scale of Watergate uh, in the midterm elections, but his supporters are very strongly with him because, and, and again, this is a subjective impression on my part, I think it's because they don't know how to climb out of the tree. They're like cats that have treed themselves on the very highest branches. They started off by saying, well, I'm going to give him a chance. And then they said, well, he made a few mistakes, but I'm going to give him a chance and it'll get better and it'll get better. And finally, you know, two, three years of that down the road, it's psychologically impossible for a lot of these people to say, you know, I was just completely wrong about the guy. This is, this is crazy. So uh, I think you know, the, it, rather than bringing us together and certainly bringing us together during a pandemic, you have a majority of the public that disapproves of the president's behavior and antics and just general job performance. But the people who approve of him approve of him quite strongly, I think, because they have painted themselves into a corner that at this point they don't know how to get out of. And again, I think they have an outsized voice uh, because the president's apologists in the media here um, have really staked out some pretty extreme uh, territory. People that you would have thought of as kind of moderate conservative voices, you know, 10 years ago are now, now sound like kind of midnight radio shock jocks while they're trying to keep up with the president. And I think that's had a, a pretty bad um, impact on our public debate. So my, my colleague, Dr. Jennifer Hunt, a native South Carolinian herself, says that her students here in Australia uh, have noted President Trump's claim from the 2016 election that if he were to lose, it would be an indication of a rigged election. And they now ask hypothetically, what would happen if a sitting president refused to concede electoral defeat? Well, he he really doesn't have that option because the Electoral College doesn't report to him. And I think that's a great question and it's important to understand. The way it happens is that each state's electors tally their vote. They meet in their states. They send that message not to President Trump, not to the executive branch. They send it to the majority leader of the Senate. Now, 
you know, I suppose if you really want to go deep into the conspiracy rabbit hole, you know, what if Mitch McConnell, the the majority leader who is very strongly a Trump ally, uh, decided to disbelieve the election results? But you know, the, this is where American federalism is really quite strong. That the individual states are the ones. You know, California is not going to suddenly say, "Well, the president didn't like the outcome of the election, so our fifty-four electoral votes are null and void." Those fifty-four electors are going to report their vote to the you know, publicly to the majority leader of the Senate. At that point, the majority leader has to certify the election. He he doesn't really have a lot of, you know, choice about that. He's merely kind of the reporting authority on this, according to the Constitution. At that point, once that election is certified, President Trump can claim all day that he's the legitimate president. But what would happen is Joe Biden would be sworn in as president and he would have to vacate the White House. Now, I, you know, I don't think that scenario is going to come to pass. But with this president, one never knows. But in, if that were really the case, then the new, newly sworn-in president would say to the Secret Service, "Please remove this person from the White House," and that would be the end of it. I, I think people who worry about this scenario don't understand that the president of the United States is not the, some kind of national clearinghouse for the for the vote. The vote takes place in each of the states. Each of the states report those results to their own secretary of state, at which point their electors are chosen and sent forward. And those electors meet, cast their vote, and report that to the president of the Senate. So, you know, it's simply impossible. I, I shouldn't say anything's impossible, but it, it's a tough lift for a president to say, well, I don't believe the national vote because what he's really having to say is, I don't believe the vote in you know 15 or 16 states that voted against me and therefore you know their, their votes shouldn't be counted. He doesn't get to make that choice. The, se- the majority leader of the Senate doesn't get to make that choice. The American constitution says that the electors are sent from the co- states in a manner in which they shall choose. So it's even more, um, there's even more power there than I think people realize that if, you know, if the electors of, you know, my state of Rhode Island wanted to, if we wanted to choose our electors by having a, you know, a, a, a three-legged foot race, we could do that. I mean, that's the constitution leaves that to us, not to the federal government. So I, I, I mean, he can make, I, I, and I, in 2016, I mean, I, I voted, um, for, um, I was not a huge fan of Hillary Clinton, but I threw my vote on that popular vote pile in part because I was so offended by the notion that anybody running for president would say uh, that the the national vote is rigged. Um, But, you know, I'm sure he'll say it again if he loses, but he really doesn't have a lot of control over that process. Let's hope that he's aware of that as well. So finally, a question that we're asking all of our podcast guests this year is, have there been any moments in your life that have shaped uh, the way that you view the world? Have there been any seminal experiences such as a book that you've read, a speech that you've heard, or even a place that you've traveled to that has guided your approach to your career and how you understand the world? Uh, well, w- when I was young, uh, there were two uh, things that happened to me that set me on the course that led me to study Russia and to think about this the larger problem of the stability of democracy, which is what I'm actually writing about now in a new book. Um, the first was that um, one of my teachers 
I, I think it's important to point out, I was a science major. I, I was in high school. I thought I was going to go off and study chemistry. So I didn't really have a lot of interest in English teachers telling me to read stuff. And one of my beloved teachers um, assigned 1984 and made me read it. And I devoured it in a day and a half at about 16 years old. And it, and it stunned me. And um, I, it changed me. And when I, when I was at, when I finished college and I was studying the Soviet Union, I went to the Soviet Union and I am a Greek Orthodox. That is to say, I'm part of the Eastern Orthodox church. And so while I was in the Soviet Union, we were at a monastery where they were still allowing, um, religious services. And I went to those services and the utter contempt with which the regime treated the church of which I was a communicant, um, literally reduced me to tears. And I suddenly it, it occurred to me that it's a real thing, that it's not just notional, that it, there are places in the world where you are not free to worship as you please, where you may not speak um, a, as you choose. You may not associate with other human beings at will. Uh, and that um, seer, those two, uh, first as a kind of a notional idea, and then as a practical experience, those were searing experiences to me as a young man. Um, I was, you know, 16 and 22 respectively when those two things happened. And, uh, I would say that those stayed with me for the entire rest of my career, knowing that human beings were capable of this and that there were places in the world while I was alive and enjoying my freedoms as a member of a democracy, as a citizen of democracy, uh, where people were afraid to speak. They were afraid to go to church. They were afraid to read, uh, be caught reading something that wasn't approved and, and so on. So I, that, that, I think those were the two most important things that happened to me. And even after the Soviet Union fell, those were lessons I took with me in thinking about uh, what a precious and fragile thing democracy really is. Professor Tom Nichols, thank you very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And a big thanks to Professor Tom Nichols for chatting to us here at the National Security Podcast. It is a big year for national security issues the world over, but I feel that 2020 will be written about in American history textbooks for many, many generations. Before we head off, I'd like to tell you about what we have coming up on the 21st of May. In just over a week's time, we will be hosting a live pod stream on Indonesia and COVID-19. We'll have Sydney Jones from the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict to talk about the conflict in Papua and the Mujahideen of Eastern Indonesia in the time of COVID-19. We will speak to Dr. Charlotte Setajadi about the impact on ethnic Chinese in Indonesia, as well as bilateral relations with Beijing. And we will speak to Dr. Quinton Tembi about how extremist groups are being impacted and responding to the global pandemic. Hit up the ANU National Security College website for registration details and timings. We will be taking questions from the audience on the day, but if you have any that you'd like to get to us beforehand, you can find me on Twitter using the at NatSecPod handle. As well, if you have any thoughts on this episode of the podcast or any other episode, please get in touch to let us know what you think. You can do that via Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum, or you can hit me up at NatSecPod. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or you can use the personal touch by dropping us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. 
Thanks very much for joining us today. We look forward to speaking to you on the next episode of the National Security Podcast. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.